Chapter Six of *The Madman and the Pirate* by R. M. Ballantyne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arrowit. *The Madman and the Pirate* by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Six. After Zeppa had remained a short time in his new quarters, he began to take an interest in the children of his savage friends. At first the mothers of the village were alarmed when they saw their little ones in his strong arms, playing with his beard, which had by that time grown long and shaggy, as well as grey like his curly locks. But soon perceiving that the children had nothing to fear from the strange white man, they gave themselves no further concern on the subject. If Zeppa had been in his right mind when the savages first found him, it is probable that they would have hunted him down and slain him without remorse, for it is well known that many of the South Sea Islanders regard shipwrecked persons as victims who have no claim on their hospitality, but are a sort of windfall to be killed and devoured. Their treatment of Zeppa, therefore, must have been owing to some feeling of respect or awe inspired by his obvious insanity, coupled, no doubt, with his commanding size and presence, as well as his singular conduct on the occasion of their first meeting. Whatever the reason, it is certain that the natives amongst whom the poor madman's lot had thus been cast treated him in an exceptional manner, and with an amount of respect that almost amounted to reverence. At first, Angalu made a slight attempt to ascertain where his guest had come from, and what was his previous history. But as Zeppa always met such inquiries, with one of his sweetest smiles, and with no verbal reply whatever, the chief felt unusually perplexed, dropped the subject, and began to regard the madman as a species of demigod. Of course, no one else dared to question him, so that ever afterwards he remained in the eyes of his entertainers a great mystery. By degrees, Zeppa became intimately acquainted with the little boys and girls of the village, and took much pleasure in watching them at play. They soon found out that he was fond of them, and might have become rather troublesome in their attentions to him, if he had been a busy man, but as he had nothing whatever to do except follow his own inclinations, and as his inclinations led him to sympathize with childhood, he was never ruffled by their familiarities or by their wild doings around his tent. He even suffered a very few of the smallest of the brown troop to take liberties with him and pull his beard. One brown might in particular, a female baby of the smallest conceivable dimensions and the wildest possible spirit, became an immense favorite with him. Her name was Lippy, or some sound which that combination of letters produces. Lippy's mother, a large-eyed, good-looking young woman, with insufficient clothing, at least in the estimate of a ratingite, was transfixed the first time she saw her little one practice her familiarities on their demigod. Seppa was lying on his back at the time, in front of his hut, when Lippy prowled cautiously towards him, like a very small and sly kitten, about to pounce on a very huge dog. She sprang, just as her mother caught sight of her, and was on his broad chest in a moment. The mother was, as we have said, transfixed with alarm. The human kitten seized Zeppa by the beard and laughed immoderately. Zeppa replied with a gentle smile. He never laughed out now, and remained quite still. Having finished her laugh, Lippy drew herself forward until she was close to her human dog's chin. At this point, 
her mother would have rushed to the rescue, but she was still paralyzed. Having reached the chin, Lippy became more audacious, stretched forth one of her little hands, and seized Zeppa's nose. Still he did not move, but when the little brown kitten proceeded to thrust a thumb into one of his eyes, he roused himself, seized the child in his powerful hands, and raised her high above his head, then, lowering her until her little mouth was within reach, he kissed her. This sufficed to relieve the mother's fears, so she retired quietly from the scene. She was not so easily quieted, however, some weeks later, when she beheld Zeppa, after amusing himself one day with Lippy for half an hour, start up, place her on his shoulder, and stalk off toward the mountains. He absented himself for three days on that occasion. Lippy's mother at first became anxious, then terrified, then desperate. She roused Ongoloo to such a pitch that he at last called a council of war. Some of the headmen were for immediate pursuit of the madman, others were of opinion that the little brat was not worth so much trouble. A few wretches even expressed the opinion that they were well rid of her, there being already too many female babies in the community. While the conflict of opinions was at its fiercest, Zeppa, stalked into the middle of them with Lippy on his shoulder, looked round with a benignant expression of countenance, delivered the child to her mother, and went off to his hut without uttering a word. The council immediately dissolved itself and retired, humiliated. It was during one of Zeppa's occasional absences that the Ratara tribe of natives, as before mentioned, decided to have another brush with the mountain men, as they styled their foes. We are not sure that the word used in the Ratara language was the exact counterpart of the words brush and scrimmage in ours, but it meant the same thing, namely, the cutting of a number of throats, or the battering in of a number of human skulls unnecessarily. Of course there was a casus belli. There always is among savage, as well as civilized nations, and it is a curious coincidence that the reasons given for the necessity of war are about as comprehensible among the civilized as the savage. Of course, among civilized nations these reasons for war are said to be always good. Christians, you know, could not kill each other without good reasons. But is it not strange that among educated people the reasons given for going to war are often very much the reverse of clear. The origin of the war, which was about to be revived, besides being involved in the mists of antiquity, was somewhat shrouded in the clouds of confusion. Cleared of these clouds, and delivered from these mists, it would have been obviously a just, nay, even a holy war, so both parties said, for they both wanted to fight. Unfortunately, no living man could clear away the clouds or mists. Nevertheless, as they all saw plainly the exceeding righteousness of the war, they could not in honor, in justice, or in common sense, do otherwise than go at it. At some remote period of antiquity, probably soon after the dispersion of Babel, it was said that the mountain men had said to the Raturans that it had been reported to them that a rumor had gone abroad that they, the men of Ratara, were casting covetous eyes on the summit of their mountain. The Raturans replied that it had never entered into their heads either to covet or to look at the summit of their mountain, but that, if they had any doubts on the subject, they might send over a deputation to meet a Rattara deputation, and hold a palaver to clear the matter up. The deputations were sent. They met. They palavered for about half an hour with an air of sententious sincerity. Then the leading chief of the mountaineer deputation cracked the crown of the leading chief of the Rattara deputation, and the two deputations spent the remainder of that day in fighting. Reinforcements came up on both sides. The skirmish became a pitched battle. Blood was shed lavishly, heads were broken beyond repair, and women, coming to the aid of the men with the baskets of stones, 
were slain in considerable numbers, as well as little children who had an inconvenient but not uncommon habit of getting in the way of the combatants. At last the Raturans were driven into the impregnable swamps that bordered part of their country. Their villages and crops were burned, and those of their women and children who had not escaped to the swamps were carried into slavery, while the aged of both sexes were slaughtered in cold blood. It was a complete victory. We are inclined to think that the mountain men called it a glorious victory. Judging from the world's history, they probably did, and the mountain women ever afterwards were wont to tell their little ones of the prowess of their forefathers, of the skulls battered in and other deeds of heroism done in that just and reasonable war. As centuries rolled on, the old story came to be repeated again and over again, with slight variations to suit the varying ages. In particular, it came to be well understood and asserted that that unconquerable desire of the Raturans to take possession of the mountain top was growing apace and had to be jealously watched and curbed. In one of the centuries, we are not sure which, the Rataran savages made some advances into their swampy grounds and began to improve them. This region lay very remote from the mountain men's villages, but as it approached the mountain base in a roundabout manner, and as the mountain tops could be distinctly seen from the region, although well-nigh impassable swamps still lay between the reclaimed lands and the mountain base, these advances were regarded as another casus belli, and another war was waged with practically the same results, damage to everybody concerned and good to no one. Thus was the game kept up until the chief Angaloo began to strut his little hour upon the stage of time. There are always men, savage as well as civilized, in every region and age, who march in advance of their fellows, either because of intellectual capacity or moral rectitude or both. Angaloo was one of these. He did not believe in war at any price. He thought it was probable that God lived in a state of peace, and argued that what was best for the Creator must naturally be best for the creature. He therefore tried to introduce a peace policy into Sugarloaf Island. His efforts were not successful. The war party was too strong for him. At last he felt constrained to give in to the force of public opinion, and agreed to hold an unarmed palaver with the men of Rattara. The war-at-any-price party would have preferred an armed palaver, but they were overruled. The Raturans chanced at this time to be in somewhat depressed circumstances, owing to a sickness that had carried off many of their best warriors and left their lands partly waste, so that their finances, if we may so express it, were in a bad condition. Now is our chance, now or never, thought the war party, and pushed matters to extremity. On the day appointed for the palaver, one of the most pugnacious of the mountain men got leave to open the deliberations. You're a low-minded, sneaking son of an ignorant father, he said to the spokesman of the Raturans. You're another, reported his foe. Having disposed of these preliminary compliments, the speakers paused, glared, and breathed hard. You and your greedy forefathers, resumed the mountain men, have always kept your false eyes on our mountaintop, and you are looking at it still. That's a lie, returned the man of Rattara with savage simplicity. Had they been armed, it is probable that the palaver would have closed abruptly at this point. Seeing that the relations between the parties were strained almost to the breaking point, one of the less warlike among the Rattara chiefs caught his own spokesman by the nape of the neck and hurled him back among his comrades. We have not, O valiant men of the mountain, he said in a gentle tone, looked upon your hilltops with desire. We only wish to improve our swamps, increase our sweet potato grounds, and live at peace. That is not true, reported the fiery mountain man, and we must have a promise from you that you will let the swamps alone, and not advance one step nearer to the top of our mountain. But the swamps are not yours, objected the other. 
No matter, they are not yours. They are neutral ground, and must not be touched. Well, we will not touch them, said the peaceful Rattoran. This reply disconcerted the fiery mountaineer, for he was anxious to fight. But that is not enough, he resumed, as a bright idea struck him. You must promise not even to look at our mountain. The man of Rattara, reflecting how ill-able his tribe was to go to war just then, agreed not even to look at the mountain. More than that, resumed the mountaineer, you must not even wink at it. We will not even wink at it, replied his foe. Still further, continued the more like mountaineer, in sheer desperation, you must not even think of it. We will not think of it, answered the accommodating man of Rattara. Bah! You may go, you peace-loving cowards, said the disappointed mountaineer, turning on his heel in bitter disappointment. Yes, you may go, in peace, said Angoulou, with sententious gravity, waving his band grandly to the retiring men of Rattara, and walking off with an air of profound solemnity, though he could not help laughing, in his arms somewhere, as he had not a sleeve to do it in. But the Raterans did not go in peace. They went away with bitter animosity in their hearts, and some of them resolved to have a brush with their old foes, come what might. Savages do not, as a rule, go through the formality of declaring war by withdrawing ambassadors. They are much more prone to begin war with that deceptive act styled a surprise. Smarting under the taunts of their foes, the Raterans resolved to make an attack on the enemy's village that very night, but Ongoloo was more than a match for them. Suspecting their intentions, he stalked them when the shades of evening fell, heard all their plans while concealed among the long grass, and then, hastening home, collected his warriors. It chanced that Zeppa had returned from one of his rambles at the time, and was lying in his hut. "'Will you come out with us and fight?' demanded Angoulou, entering abruptly. The mention of fighting seemed to stir some chord which jarred in Zeppa's mind, for he shook his head and frowned. It is possible that, if the savage had explained how matters stood, the poor madman might have consented, but the chief had not the time, perhaps not the will, for that. Turning quickly round, therefore, he went off as abruptly as he had entered. Zeppa cared nothing for that. Indeed, he soon forgot the circumstance, and, feeling tired, lay down to sleep. Meanwhile, Angoulou marched away with a body of picked men to station himself in a narrow pass through which he knew that the invading foe would have to enter. He was hugely disgusted to be thus compelled to fight, after he had congratulated himself on having brought the recent palaver to so peaceful an issue. He resolved, however, only to give his enemies a serious fright, for he knew full well that if blood should flow, the old war spirit would return, and the ancient suspicion and hatred would be revived and intensified. Arranging his plans, therefore, with this end in view, he resolved to take that peaceful, though thieving, humorist, Waputa, into his secret councils. Summoning him, after the ambush had been properly arranged and the men placed, he said, Come here, you villain. Waputa knew that Angoulou was not displeased with him by the nature of his address. He therefore followed, without anxiety, to a retired spot among the bush-covered rocks. You can screech, Waputa? Yes, chief, answered the ex-thief in some surprise. I can screech like a parrot the size of a whale. That will do. And you love peace, like me, Waputa, and hate bloodshed, though you love thieving. True, chief, returned the other modestly. Well, then listen, and if you tell anyone what I say to you, I will squeeze the eyes out of your head, punch the teeth from your jaws, and extract the oil from your backbone. Waputa thought that this was pretty strong for a man who had just declared his hatred of bloodshed, but he said nothing. You know the rock, something in shape like your own nose, at the foot of this pass, said Angoulou. I know it, chief. Well, go there. Hide yourself, and get ready for a screech. 
When you see the rattle of dogs come in sight, give it out, once, only once, and if you don't screech well, I'll teach you how to do it better afterwards. Wait, then, till you hear and see me and my men come rushing down the track, and then screech a second time. Only once, mind, but let it be long and strong. You understand? Now away. Like a bolt from a crossbow, Waputa sped. He had not been in hiding two minutes when the Rattara party came stealthily toward the rock before mentioned. Waputa gathered himself up for a supreme effort. The head of the enemy's column appeared in view. Then there burst, as if from the bosom of silent night, a yell such as no earthly parrot ever uttered or wail conceived. The very blood in the veins of all stood still. Their limbs refused to move. Away over the rolling plain went the horrid sound, till it gained the mountain, where, after being buffeted from cliff to crag, it finally died out far up among the rocky heights. A device of the rattera dogs to frighten us, growled Angalud to those nearest him. Come, follow me, and remember, not a sound till I shout. The whole party sprang up and followed their chief at full gallop down the pass. The still petrified Raturans heard the sound of rushing feet. When Waputa saw the dark forms of his comrades appear, he filled his chest and opened his mouth, and the awful skirl arose once again, as if to pollute the night air. Then Angalu roared. With mingled surprise and ferocity, his men took up the strain as they rushed toward the now dimly visible foe. Savage nerves could stand no more. The Raturans turned and fled as one man. They descended the pass as they had never before descended it. They coursed over the plains like greyhounds. They passed through their own villages like a whirlwind, and drew most of the inhabitants after them like the living tail of a mad comet, and only stopped when they fell exhausted on the damp ground in the remotest depths of their own dismal swamps. End of chapter 6